Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. We're going to mostly talk today about Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, and hopefully a way that Possibly, unless you're kind of a Bible geek like I am, you may never have heard of this approach before, which I'm kind of excited about. I still want to, though, get to the rest and the crucifixion by reading some of Mark um, and kind of doing what I like to do a little bit more exegetically and read some verse by verse. Well, obviously, we've got too much to do to go verse by verse all the way through. But I want to hit some points before we get to the crucifixion part. Um, I have three goals this morning that will be up on air. My first one um, is that you will be, this is, this is the, the, you will be more secure, sure and secure of your salvation more than ever before today. That's, that's one of my goals. Um, number two is that you will see the power of the cross like maybe never before. I'm hoping for that too. And then three, if even a little bit of that first two, those first two goals happen, that you will have more boldness to share the gospel with some friends or family or coworkers or whatever. That's my goals and my hopes for today. Um, so let's pray real quick. I, I pray a lot and that's a good thing, right? Um, but let's pray. Father, uh, let your word do what it does. Uh, let me just be a vessel, passing on information, um, giving some points that you hammered me with. It'll be fun to share, Lord, but let it be your spirit, let it be your truth as we talk today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get to the crucifixion, but I wanted to hit some interesting points to get us to it, uh, with the arrest particularly. And we're going to be Mark 14. Uh, let me just have a plug here. This is just something I think God spoke to me about, and you can judge, like, no, that's just for you. But I want to share it with you. I want to encourage you to bring Bibles to church, okay? No big deal, but this thing is such a mixture of really good stuff and really horrible stuff. And it's okay to read your Bible off of this. I'm certainly not going to, not to tell you not to do that. But the Lord's really been pushing on me to just get into this. My face in this. This thing doesn't text me. It doesn't do anything weird. It doesn't make music. Or, you know what I mean? Um, I just want to encourage you. So if, if you think of it, if God lays that on your heart to, to bring Bibles. But um, here we go. I'm going to start in verse 43. I'm just going to read and throw some points out at you that I find really fascinating. Uh, and immediately while he was speaking, Judas, this is, the, um, this is after the, the Last Supper and all that kind of stuff, um, and Jesus praying and all, he's in Gethsemane. Immediately while he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs. And if you ask, well, who's this multitude? They're from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now, if you remember... Something I think I said or somebody said a, a while back, when you, start, when you read about these chief priest guys and these scribes and elders, these guys are basically like the religious mob. 
These guys are corrupt. They're not good guys. They're coming at late at night. This might be 9, 10 o'clock at night, whatever. It's dark. John goes so far as to say that there was also a Roman cohort with them. So this is the multitude, okay? We don't know how many, but it's many. Mostly made up of chief priests and religious mob guys that none of us would probably like back then. And probably some Roman cohort. They were probably more like police officers making sure nothing too out of hand got going. Okay? But that's the multitude. And now he who was betraying him, Jesus, had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Um, that's because it would be dark out and it might be hard to tell who, who Jesus was with everybody there. And so, just a horrible way to betray somebody, obviously. And after coming, he immediately went up to him saying, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. And everybody's favorite part, but a certain one of those who, who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. That's kind of fun, right? Uh, now... Just, you know, just to kind of explain some other things. John, he goes so far as to say that this multitude that came, and, and, Peter, and, and then, you know, the betrayal kiss, and then they say to him, so you're, you're this Jesus guy. And when Jesus says, I am, John records that the whole crowd falls backward. This multitude just, like, falls backward. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if it was sort of like this. It must have looked pretty cool. Because in my opinion, John also says that this guy that Mark doesn't say, who draws a sword to cut the guy's, probably cut the guy's head off, was probably Peter. That's what John says. It was Peter. Uh, he probably got the gumption to do that because he just saw this crowd fall backward and was like, oh, yeah, it's on. Let's do this. Right? I, I mean, that's kind of what I used to think. What does a fisherman think he's going to do with a sword? You know, before when I read this, but then I, when you put that together, it's really possible that Peter was like, yeah, let's go. Just at the mention of Jesus' name, like Jesus is already taking care of business. Anyway, um, he goes on, Jesus is only, like the closest Jesus ever even comes to defending himself is when Jesus says, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like I'm a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has happened that the scriptures might be filled. And then it says, and they all left him and fled. That's the disciples. And then this weird part of Mark, this weird part that I never used to get. And a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and, and they seized him. And he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. What a weird thing, right? Like, you ever look at that and just be like, okay, is this like somebody from Eugene or something? Like, what is, like, I don't get, this is really strange. Um, a lot of scholars believe that this may have been Mark describing himself. Can't say for sure. A lot of scholars believe that. But the point of this little weird tidbit is what I believe Mark is trying to tell us is that, because it's right on the hinges of verse 50, and they all left him and fled. They all took off, all Jesus' friends took off. So much so that even one of them, when they were grabbed, took off and that they, all he left behind was, linens were expensive, left that behind. That's how much they would rather be running in the dark naked than be associated with Christ. It's pretty heavy when you think of it that way. Pretty sad too. <clears throat> then it gets, they take him before Caiaphas 
And it says that for many were giving false testimony against him, and yet their testimony was not consistent. And some of them stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, and this is verse 58, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. That's a lie. That's, Jesus never said that. That's the false testimony that they're bringing. Jesus said that the, the temple would be destroyed and rebuilt, but he never said, I'm going to do it. They're adding this one little thing to it to spin it off to accuse Jesus. I make a point of that because, and I'm not going to get on a soapbox here, but I think that's what's happening in the church today. I think we get blamed for a lot of stuff that we deserve, but I think we get blamed for a lot of stuff we don't deserve too. I, I, and I'm seeing it in, in a lot of the progressive Christianity circles and a lot of the, the, the so-called, when we're all doing it, the, the deconstructing and then kind of rebuilding what our faith is and that kind of thing. Because people are so frustrated with some of the dumb things the church does sometimes, which we do do some dumb things, that it gets named amongst us that we're all like this, that we all do this, this thing. That because while we say something's a sin, regardless of what it might be, that we hate that person, or that they're not welcome here, or not accepted, or you have a, a political position that happens to fit something you think is scriptural, and somebody else has a political position that they think fits something scriptural, and then all of a sudden it becomes this thing like, well, that's what they say, that's what they all say, and you're not accepted there, and you're not welcome here, and you're hated there, and, all, and like, we're all, like, I'm sorry, most of the people I know here are like, what? When did, I ever, when did I ever say I hated anybody or didn't accept anybody? I don't remember ever saying that. But that's what the enemy does. It's doing it here in Scripture. We're seeing Jesus getting blamed for things he didn't even say. It's happening in the church today, too. The only other thing I wanted to talk about before we start to, uh, to talk about the crucifixion um, is that I just want to talk about the denial of Peter for a moment. Peter is precious to me in scripture because I feel like I relate to so many of his particularly dumb things that he does. I just, I, I have this gung-ho spirit, but then I just, I'll throw myself right into something dumb like Peter, Peter did constantly. Um, when Peter denies Christ three times, just something I want you to think about that's just precious to me. Um, most Jewish Scholars or, or people who would be, um, you know, just studying this from a Jewish type of view would tell you that Peter's denial of Christ was every bit as bad or possibly worse than Judas's. That it wasn't just a lie. Judas didn't, or, or Peter didn't just lie to people when they said, do you know him? That he was literally disowning himself. In a sense, just like like completely saying I have nothing to do, not just with Jesus, but that was his rabbi. In Jewish culture, you didn't, you didn't do that unless you meant it and you were literally saying, I'm walking the other way and I have nothing to do with this anymore. What Peter did was so much more than just like in a fearful moment, just lie. He disassociated himself completely, completely from his rabbi. And that's what makes it so precious that later on, we're not going to get to it, but in chapter 16, when Jesus raises from the dead and the girls see the empty tomb and there's an angel, we believe it's an angel sitting in there, and he says, go tell everybody, right? He, goes, says, he says, go tell, go tell them, and it says, and Peter. 
It's the idea of that, just the, and make sure Peter knows. I think he does that with all of us. He knows where you screwed up, especially right where you're like sensitive about like, God, I can't believe I did that again. And there's a sense of God that he's so in touch with you or whatever. He knows and he just, and Peter, make sure Peter's there too. Make sure he gets back. And then when we see all the things that happen later, when he starts appearing, reappearing, especially when Peter like dives out of the boat to go have breakfast with Jesus on the shore. Ah, it's just precious to me, just precious. Okay, but now I wanna, I wanna touch on the crucifixion and I wanna do it, in, like I said, in a way that is uh, probably very different than most of you have ever addressed it. Um, and I'm gonna do it in two different ways. So I'm attacking it from two different angles. What I really am trying to do in doing this, just so you know, is I want to broaden the scope of what's going on here. I want you to see it as a bigger picture. It's way bigger than just this sad story of seeing somebody uh, heroically take the blame for us and, and do all the things that we, you know, that we've saw in the movies and the passion or whatever, like all these terrible, horrible things when we read it, sometimes it makes us sad and all. That's all fine, but it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. When Sarah Creighton gave her message on the triumphal entry, I believe the Lord was giving me pictures of something completely different than what was even coming off the text and even what she was saying. I had this picture in my mind of Jesus doing, the triumphal entry is happening. These people are thinking, okay, this is like sort of our next king and he's going to deal with, and Sarah even mentioned this, like he's going to deal with the Romans and, and deal with this oppression and deal with all that stuff. As if that Jesus is, his motivation and what he was there for was that kind of human or, or you know, I'll call it like a, like a manly, um, you know, agenda, right? Like it was just based on earth as if that's what Jesus was there to do. They had no idea of the grander scope, the bigger picture, okay? And my attempt right now, I don't know if anybody ever saw the movie National Treasure. And National Treasure, they're looking at a map, and they need special glasses that Ben Franklin made. And there are these glasses that you put them on, and then they have these other lenses that they flip over. And when you flip them over, you can see more information on the map, right? So I, I'm trying to put different glasses on you guys right now. So you can see this differently. And it's, I always run, it's funny, because when I'm studying this stuff, it like knocks me out. I'm sitting at the, I'll, I'll be sitting at my desk. I got my light down, and, and it's just knocking me out. I got tears in my eyes, all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to say that. And then you just never know, if, like when you deliver it, if it's going to be the same thing. But I'm hoping that it's pretty cool. I'm going to come from, like I said, from a completely different angle. Bear with me. We're going to go to Ephesians 1, okay? Ephesians 1. I'm just going to read you the first 10 verses or so. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Real quick, if you're a Christian here, you got them all. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. They're there for your availability. Just throwing that out there. That's what Paul says. I didn't say it. Verse 4, just as he chose us. Uh-oh, those are, that's a heavy word. In him, here's the thing I want you to hear, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, before the foundation of the world, he already knew about you. He already knew about me. 
In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons, and I should say it, sons and daughters, through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. He already knew it, already planned it, to adopt you, and not just adopt you so you could be like the kid living down the hallway, but to have full-on, full-on, incredible, just all of it, all of him, his inheritance. To the praise and the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, freely. Nothing we could do, it's not something you can earn. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Wisdom and insight, it means he knew it all and knew everything. He knew what you would do. He knew where you would screw up. He knew where you would betray him. He knew where you would pretend to be a Christian at church and not so much at work. He knew when you would be embarrassed to call yourself somebody who followed. He knew all of your junk He knew it all before he lavishes his grace on you, lavishes it on you. It doesn't make sense. And then he made known to us a mystery of his will according to his kind intention. His kind intention. We hear so much about how mean and awful God is in the Old Testament. This whole time he's had in kind intention, the whole time, which he purposed in him with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and the things upon the earth. Everything's about him. Also, we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory in him, you also, after listening, you heard, to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. You heard, you believed. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise before the foundations of the earth. Throw that first one up. Oh yeah, you were already going through them, that's cool. Go cycle back through them, I'm gonna just hit these really quick. The Bible is clear, he chose us before the foundation of the world. That should rock your boat. That he, he, go to the next one. He knows already who will be saved, but he seems to also be waiting patiently for all to have a chance. He says that in 2 Peter 3.9. So he already knows, and all, all the philosophers go, oh, that's determinism. It's already happened. You have no free will. But yet, he waits patiently to give everybody a chance. First, 2 Peter 3.9 says that. We are chosen. Go to the next one. We are chosen foreknown and predestined. Romans says that. We just read that. And yet, we all have free will to believe or reject. John 3.16 is one of the best verses for that. So we as a church, we believe in the now and the not yet. We talk about that. The things are sort of, they're already the now in God's eyes, but yet we're still processing. We're still going through it. The next one is, uh, you know, God calls us perfect already, but in in process. crazy. Romans 8.30 talks about us already being justified and glorified like it's already past tense because God is outside of time. He's completely bigger than all of this. 
How is this possible? How is this possible? Because we can't just look at a thing like Jesus dying on the cross as an unfortunate event in history. We can't just look at it that way because it's so much bigger. It's so much outside of that. I, I really thought I was going to have a couple of people stand. I was going to steal Wayne Cordero's. Um, he has this cool illustration with like a piece of yarn that goes out that door and kind of like we pretend it goes on forever that way as a timeline for eternity. And like our lives are like, if we put this little mark on it, like right here, you can just picture like the line sitting here, that God knows all of this stuff outside of all of that, and yet, and yet, he can intimately be acquainted with your time and your walk right here. See, he's bigger than just being outside of time. He's also intimately acquainted with our time and able to walk through it and even appear to be affected by the things that we decide to do in our time. Everything God does, everything that he's angry about or, or touched by or whatever it is, is, is within perfect context of his knowledge of everything. It's amazing. It's ama- and I'm sitting here, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm describing something that I'm probably only getting a eats bit of the truth about. Blows me away. So how is this possible? How can God be both? How can Calvinism and Arminianism, and now there's things like provisionism and Molinism, how can those things all work together? I, I have a, a, a little kind of a simple way to possibly explain it, okay? Put the triangle up there. I heard this illustration from a scientist who happened to also be a theologian. The triangle is just a triangle. That's a two-dimensional shape, yeah. If I told you, like, change that into a circle, but make it stay a triangle, um, you'd be like, well, that's impossible. In two dimensions, I'd have to redraw it, or I'd have to get some blue color and make it into something it's not, right? The only way to be able to make it into a circle and a triangle at the same time is to add a dimension to it. Right now it's two dimensions. If we add a dimension, go to the next slide, we can make it into a cone. Now with its third dimension, go to the next one, it can be a circle if we're looking at it from the bottom or we could turn it to look like a triangle. It can be both a triangle and a circle at the same time just from adding a dimension to it. Now, I'm going to make up a new word. Umph dimensional. I think God is umph dimensional, if he's even dimensional at all. But he's so outside. Can you imagine if all it took was to add one dimension to a triangle to make it a circle? Can you imagine how many dimensions God must cover? Science right now, you know, we, we had... We were hearing years ago that there was like a fourth dimension that probably included time and gravity and things like that. And now some scientists think that there, they theorize that there may be 10 dimensions that we may someday be able to study, whatever that's over my head. But whatever it is, God is umph dimensional. He's way past that, way past that. Are you getting a kind of an idea how big God is and how big he is about knowing about this event that we call the crucifixion? and how incredibly important it is. I'm gonna get back to why it's so important. But I also, now I wanna just talk um, really as fast as I can. I'm gonna try not to go too crazy. Hey, we're doing okay. Um, now I wanna, 
I want to come back to the crucifixion now. I want to give you a bigger picture. So you got the one lens down. Okay. So we're seeing it like a, with a little bit bigger picture. Now I want, I want you to see how maybe even a little bit of that knowledge informed Mark or, or just whatever. Um, but I want, I, want to, I want to talk about Mark's telling of the crucifixion because it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. Mark, I think, saw a bigger picture too. I think he saw the cross as a triumph, not a tragedy. And I believe that he geared all of his writing. First of all, we, we already know he was writing to the Romans. I don't know if you haven't gleaned from our talks about Mark up until now. Um, I'm sure it has been mentioned. But Mark's writing to the Romans, particularly. Matthew wrote to the Jewish people, the Jews. Um, Luke wrote to the Greeks. And then John wrote considerably later and wrote to everybody. But Mark is mainly thinking about Romans. He's mainly thinking about these Romans who are living in a, in a Hellenistic period at this time, um, which I'm not, I don't have time to get into all that, but they're basically a lot like us in the way they look at life, their, 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 you know, their values and whatnot. Um, that, that's what makes Mark so interesting uh, to read from our point of view. Um, with that in mind, though, I want to share this really interesting way of looking at the crucifixion, the way Mark wrote it, okay? We have, and this is, I'm, I'm going to give some credit here where credit's due. Um, I have, so I have these notes, I have my Bible, and I have my phone. Um, this, this, these are, this is information and study that comes from Thomas E. Schmidt in a writing that's, that's called Mark 15, 16 through 32, The Crucifixion Narrative and the Roman Triumphal Procession, Okay? Um, it's a study that this guy did in 1995. And then uh, people have expounded on it. Robert Gundry, uh, Ray Vanderlaan, and then my buddy Marty Solomon. That if, you, if you're into Bema stuff at all, um, he's, he's really into this too and has written about it. Um, this, this stuff is fascinating. Okay? This is absolutely fascinating what I'm about to take you through. Okay? These guys have studied... Uh, Thomas Schmidt is an Oxford historian who um, studied, this is particularly what he studied, the, the Roman historical documentation of the coronation procedures of the Caesars, particularly this of, of, of Nero. We have record of these procedures that, we, that, that they would do to coronate the next Caesar, Okay. Now, the one that has the most information actually has nine complete steps for Nero. I haven't looked at it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you information based on all of this stuff that I've studied, but I, it's not like I can tell you what it looks like, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Let me just take a moment. I'm going to read you the nine steps for Nero's coronation. Everybody with me? Okay? This is just interesting. Number one, the Praetorian Guard gathers to hail Caesar as Lord and God. Okay, you can figure that. Number two, the royal robes, a wreath crown, and a scepter are placed on Caesar. Number three, they lead Caesar through a procession lined with incense altars. Number four, Caesar is followed by the sacrifice. In, this case, in Nero's case, it's a bull. And Nero himself, he carries the instrument of death. Poor bull, he's going to be sacrificed for this thing. Everybody follow me? This is, this is, the, this is to make, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when we, when we 
inaugurate our president, you know, have, I'm sure they have all these things that they do. There's probably the breakfast and the getting ready. and the, the, So that's what they do. Five, they arrive at Capitoline Hill. Caesar is offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he refuses it, pouring it out. I think he, most guys think that he just does that to be like show power. Like everything about the coronation is to show power. Like, I don't need that, whatever. Um, six, the bull is killed. Caesar pronounces death or life on a host of prisoners. Apparently they bring a bunch of prisoners and he gets to be like, hmm, kill that guy, don't kill that guy. Just another act of power. So that he has the power of life and death. Number seven, the emperor ascends the steps of the temple with the high priest on his right and his commander on his left. Eight, Caesar is acclaimed Lord and God as people sing his praises. And number nine, they wait for a sign from the heavens. Um, in Nero's case, according to history, there was actually an eclipse that happened. So like everybody looks up and goes, oh, this must be the guy, right? Okay. I just want you to understand that this was most likely happening at the time when Mark is writing his gospel. Mark is reliving what happened that day. And he's writing to a people group who are, I mean, this might be simplifying it, but are way more into victorious stuff than they are martyr stuff, okay? He's trying to reach out to them with the gospel. I'm not going to do them all. I'm not going to show you all, but step by step, the crucifixion account follows the nine steps I just told you about. I'm not going to read them all, but I just want to hit a couple of them. That first one, the Praetorian Guard gathers to hail Caesar's Lord. That's number one. Verse 16, and the soldiers took him away into that place, that is the Praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. And this would have been at a time of day that that was very odd to do. Very odd. The royal robes, a wreath, crown, scepter, all placed on Caesar. Verse 17, and I'm, I'm staying in order here. Verse 17, and they dressed him up in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Three, they led Caesar through a procession, led with incense altars. Verse 20 says, and, and after they had mocked him, and they took the purple off him, and they put his garments back on him, they led him out to crucify him. These next two are the ones I find really fascinating. Four is that Caesar is followed by the sacrificial bull. And he's holding the instrument of, you know, death. Verse 21, that's where they, they, they press in service to a passerby coming from the country. It was Simeon of, or Simon of Cyrene, the one who ends up carrying the cross for Jesus. So Simon carries the cross for Jesus in the same way that and he's holding the instrument of death while the sacrificial bull would be following him. The one that really hits me, and I'm going to try not to get all weepy. I'm already like, I told some of the guys today, it's like, oh, it's weird when you know you're coming up on a part that you cry every time you do it. Number five, and then they arrive at the hill. Caesar is offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he refuses it, pouring out some, some act of power, they think, whatever. So weird that, that Mark is the only one who includes this in the Gospels. The other guys talk about them offering Jesus drink while he's on the cross, but this part, this is before and they try to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it in this verse 23. That was expensive stuff, wine mixed with myrrh. And you know what it was used for? Anybody know? 
just a dull pain. So when Jesus refused it, it's because he knew that part of his job was taking on the pain of all of us. Oh, that hits me. Even knowing that it's a bigger picture, even knowing that this is all a big, humongous victory, the, that Mark is trying to show us that like, what they meant for just this horrible mockery and, and mocking him through was really going to be a coronation of the king. Oh, how cool is that? How cool is that? And God and Jesus, they knew about it long before the foundations were ever laid to the earth. And they knew who would accept it and who would deny it. Oh, man. But Jesus in this moment would reject something that would help him with a little bit of the pain. I won't read the rest of them except the last one is really fascinating because when, they, when they, they wait for a sign from the heavens, uh, Nero's coronation, according to history, there was a, an eclipse. Uh, verse 33, if you remember, Mark records that um, when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land. Anyway, I just want you to see, you know, this is, a, this is this idea I'm trying to give you, this humongous picture. And all that Jesus would have already known and God would have already known and just so outside of man's intentions and, and our ideas of things and just, just what Jesus was doing was such a bigger picture than just being just another person being crucified that day. I mean, I think about like the fact that they, they arrested him and they accused him and mocked him and did all that stuff overnight, you know, and, and that group of people, make no mistake, there, there may have been some Jewish people in that, but they were the bad people. They were the chief priests and stuff like that. I know like today, I've... I've Jewish people in general sometimes get, you know, raked over the coals like they killed the Messiah or something like that. Those people were asleep all night, most likely. Can you imagine? You're, you're one of the people who love Jesus. Maybe you're somebody who was healed by Jesus. And you're just like waking up in the next morning. And this guy, Jesus is already on the cross, you guys. Can you imagine people walking by going, what happened? What happened last night? This stuff happened without their knowledge. It's so, it's so crazy. And yet he was doing it for them just blows me away. I, I hope it kind of, this is how I want to conclude. I just want to read you this and, and then we're done. Um, the fact that God intimately knew these events would take place. That he is both outside of time and walking closely with us as we experience time. That he was able to see me as a child when I gave my life to him before I even existed, and yet somehow waited patiently for me to raise my hand that day. It tells me something of the cross that will forever change the way I see that story, and it should change the way you see it as well. I have just four points and we're done. One, that he died for me. Personally, intimately, even uniquely since my sins are different than yours. My betrayals and my denials, we all have different stuff, so even uniquely. Two, that I am intimately attached to all those events that day. Both implicitly in my guilt and victoriously in my being rescued, restored, and freed from my debt. When Jesus said totalistai, it meant paid in full. 
That's another little indication that he knew what he was doing. Think about when Jesus, this isn't on here, but when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Do you you see how much bigger that statement is now? Right? They just think they're putting somebody who's been a nuisance for the last three years on a cross, but there's so much more going on. So much more going on. Number three, it means I can never feel worthless or insecure of his love for me. When I look at the cross, I cannot feel worthless. I cannot feel insecure of his love for me. It was there before me, during me, and I have in parentheses, or might I say, enduring me, and will be there after me. I can't do something to like mess that up. It's there. It was there. It's there now. It's there for you right now. It's been there. It's going to always be there. Lastly, lastly, we're done. And, and would the, guy, the band come up, please? Lastly, it means I can have bold confidence in his love and desire to save others. That I can be bold with the gospel because he's already gone on before me. It's already out there. He's already working in people's hearts. He already knows. He already knows all of it. I hope I didn't confuse you because I know I, I know I threw some serious Calvinism at you and I threw some Arminianism at you and I threw, and I'm just trying to say in the grand scope of all of it, God's got it all just taken care of. He's so big, he's so incredible.